0: To avoid the crowds that put a stress on Machu Picchu, consider a trip to the Andean cloud forest in the north of Peru.
1: Folks have always known that there was something there, but it's only in the last 20 years that they've discovered that it was a whole citadel occupying the entire top of a mountain.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, travel experts take us to the roads less traveled in the Andes. Guides from Spain take us for a deeper look at what we can discover in Andalusia. And never be afraid to explore. Because Andalucía is not just Córdoba, Sevilla.
2: You've got wonderful regions. I love Jaén, which we can consider as the olive oil world capital.
0: And a freelance journalist reports back from Afghanistan on day-to-day life between skirmishes for the troops. And how, when they were in Iraq, they got to hang out inside one of Saddam Hussein's former palaces.
3: And there were these huge PlayStation video games set up, and they would be playing war games inside a gorgeous palace.
0: Embed yourself in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When you hear seductive guitar music, when you smell the saffron and seafood being cooked up in massive bowls of paella, and when you bump into a colony of sunburned Brits baking on the beach, you know you're in the deep south of Spain. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, travel experts from Spain guide us into the classic region of Andalusia and a journalist shares with us what he's chronicled about the day-to-day realities for soldiers in the U.S. military while assigned to Iraq and Afghanistan. But first, two million visitors a year are putting a real stress on the Inca Trail around Cusco and Machu Picchu. But for an alternative that offers you an honest feel for contemporary and pre-Columbian indigenous cultures in Peru, Lonely Planet writer Carolina Miranda joins us right now to recommend an alternative scene She's found in the rarely visited north of the country. Carolina, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So tell us about the tourist crowd situation, the big picture in Peru, where everybody generally goes and where they might go if they want to enjoy the same Inca magic without the congestion.
1: Well, I think most tourists head for the south because that's where the popular sites of Cusco and Machu Picchu are. That's also where Lake Titicaca is, and they often go to check out the lake. And as a result, you've ended up with a very sort of crowded tourist infrastructure. I mean, you cannot walk around the plaza in Cusco without getting solicited for a tour or a sweater or, you know, any number of tourist services. And Peru is a big country with an amazing number of cultures and and settlements and ruins. And I always recommend that if maybe you've already seen Machu Picchu or you prefer an uncrowded experience is to head north.
0: Hmm. And where north?
1: Well, specifically, the area around Chachapoyas in the northern highlands. And uh, the way you get there is most folks fly into the northern coastal city of Chiclayo and then take a bus up into the mountains. And what you have in Chachapoyas is almost a city that maybe was like Cusco in the 1980s. You have a trickle of, of travelers that come through, but it's still very much an agricultural center, the type of village where... Families stroll through the town plaza in the evenings where the kids go to play ball, where the mutts still sleep in the streets and and families live with their front doors open. It's a very picturesque little town, and it happens to lie near some magnificent pre-Columbian ruins built by the Chachapoya people, which were later conquered by the Incas. And uh, there's the cloud forest citadel of Quelap, and there's this astonishing uh, burial site of Carajilla that all lie as part of a day trip from the village.
0: And you write in, in your Lonely Planet Guide to Peru, one of the tallest waterfalls in the world.
1: Yes, the Cataracta de Gokta is another day trip from Chachapoyas. Uh, most people either do it hiking or on a horseback ride. And once you've heard the thunderous rush of that water, I don't think there's anything that sounds quite as loud or as impressive.
0: Wow, <laughs> as now that. this sounds like a, a real, what I would call a back door. You've got a charming town that provides yes. enough infrastructure, and then several world class sites within easy striking distance of that home base, and all of the tourist crowds are heading down to Machu Picchu.
1: Exactly. I mean, I was there just last year. And the hotel infrastructure has has really improved in recent years. It just so happens that this was a site that sort of started to come into its own just in the 1990s, where the road was paved to the area. Peruvian presidents started coming to visit. Peruvians started to visit. Mm. Tourists from other parts of South America are sort of popping in to check it out. So it's really one of those destinations that's emerging and as a result it just feels very very unspoiled like this is not the kind of place where you're going to find a Starbucks on the town plaza
0: and you wrote kind of comically at night there's very little to do it's pretty humble and small and uh, you just uh, sit in a little uh, like a Seven Eleven store and have a guava liqueur or what, what did you
1: <laughs> exactly this? one of the highlights of Chachapoyas is is they're very into these homemade liqueurs with uh, local fruits Chachapoyas lies right near the Amazon so the fruit selection around there oh. is magnificent So you can sit in these little stores that they look like convenience stores slash bars slash liquor stores. Like you could buy a six pack of toilet paper and have a shot. Of guava liqueur or uh, chirimoya, which is the Andean custard apple uh, liqueur, and then stroll around the town plaza and and hang out with the families. Um, but usually, most of the stuff you're doing during the day is so active that I found myself going to bed pretty early at night. Is so. it
0: is it dark, or is there are there street lamps, or or what's it like?
1: Oh after yeah, dark? I mean it, we're talking about a, a pretty developed uh, little town. It, it's got a good hotel infrastructure. There's a number of restaurants, very good restaurants, in fact. Cooking in that part of the country is very delicious, and internet cafes, uh, the little liquor stores, a couple of bars. It's got enough there to keep you entertained in the evenings, now, that's what's for
0: the, sure. what's the sort of museum and the teaching situation like? I know when you're going to, you know, some ancient site in Italy or Greece, they'll have a wonderful mm-hmm. museum both in the capital city and at the actual ancient site. You wrote about some pretty impressive museums, some modern museums, in this rather remote corner of Peru.
1: Oh, yeah. Near Chachapoyas is the little village of Le Mibamba. And Le Mibamba is a charming two-block Andean town where you literally still see the horses tied up to the signposts. They have a wonderful museum that was partially built with money by the Belgian government that houses a number of Chachapoya relics, as well as a whole storehouse of Chachapoya mummies Mm. from a nearby uh, ruined site by a lake that was excavated. Again, a surprisingly modern, well-installed, beautifully built museum in a Spanish-style adobe building with some incredible, incredible pieces in this tiny uh, little village.
0: Mm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Carolina Miranda, and she's uh, one of the lead researchers and writers for the Lonely Planet guidebook to Peru. Carolina, you mentioned the Fortress at Culap. Describe that to me. It sounds fascinating.
1: Well, this is one of the most fantastic finds in Peruvian archaeology. They've really just started excavating it seriously in the last 20 years. Folks have always known that there was something there, but it's only in the last 20 years that they've discovered that it was a whole citadel occupying the entire top of a mountain, actually a cloud forest peak in the northern Andes, that was built probably by the Chachapoyas people between 8 and 900 A.D. They're uh, a pre-Inca culture, and then the site was later Mm. occupied by the Incas as well. And it's made out of this kind of yellowy sandstone, and there was only one entrance to the complex, and it's this very sort of dramatic very tall but very narrow trapezoidal door that you have to walk through to get in. And then from there, it's a sprawling compound of hundreds of roundhouses. The Chachapoyas built their homes round. Most of the cultures in Peru built square hmm. uh, homes, but these are all of these like circular dwellings. And then in the middle of them, a ceremonial sort of astronomical point that looks like an inverted ink pot. It really is this very sort of surreal architecture, again, all located right on the crest of a mountain. So you have fantastic views no matter where you look.
0: And that's built K-U-E-L-A-P?
1: Mm-hmm. up?
0: You've referred it as a fortress, but it sounds like it has a religious element to it.
1: Well, there is a little bit of mystery as to what exactly this site was. It is most certainly built like a fortification, and its defenses are very strong. It only has that one very narrow entrance, but it housed a whole city of people. I mean, there are buildings mm-hmm. for every type of use, be it dwellings or religious use. So now archaeologists think that it was probably more than simply a military fortress, but on first impact, it definitely feels and looks like a fortress.
0: Now, altitude is a concern when people are visiting Cusco and Machu Picchu. What are the altitude concerns uh, for Chachapoyas?
1: This is similar. I mean, we're talking about places in the Andes that are anywhere from 8 to 10 to 11,000 feet in altitude. I believe Cuelap is at about 11,000 feet, which is at the same height as uh, Cusco. So whenever people get to these areas, I always recommend just take the first day to do nothing. That's Mm -hmm. really the best. And eat light.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And is there an optimal time of year for visiting this part of Peru?
1: I think the best time to go is in the fall, probably September, October, before the rainy season starts. This area is highly agricultural, so everybody's out planting. There's like a lot of activity going on, but the roads are still dry, which is a boon when you're visiting. Like the area, the the burial site of Carajilla, you have to reach via dirt roads. So it's definitely better to go in the dry season.
0: Now, I would imagine when you go to Machu Picchu, you'll encounter a lot of tour groups, whereas when you go to Chachapoyas, would it be more individual travelers and like Europeans yes. out roughing it? I mean, what kind of travelers do you see at Chachapoyas?
1: Couples, some backpackers, and Peruvian families. That's who you find at Chachapoyas. And then, folks to the mid-range. I mean, there there are some cute little B and B's and hotels now in Chachapoyas. So. You, you don't have to totally rough it to go there. So you're seeing a combination of people, but mostly independent travelers.
0: And, and how's the, the cost? I mean, it, it costs a fair amount to fly there, but once you've arrived in Peru and you get to Chachapoyas, you're not going to be a youth hosteler. You want to stay in a nice little guest house or B&B and, and eat well uh, uh, by local standards. What are you going to pay for your, your bed and for a meal?
1: Oh, it's actually Chachapoya compared to southern Peru, which is very touristy, is a deal. You can get great little B and Bs in the fifty to seventy dollar range a night, and I'm I'm talking about like large, nice rooms with beautiful art and hearty breakfasts, um, located around mm-hmm. Spanish courtyards. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm talking about really scenic, picturesque uh, places. And you're going to eat well, and usually, I mean, I don't think we spent, I went with my husband, I don't think we spent more than $20 for good, delicious meals in the area. So it's definitely, if you want to travel Peru on a budget, this is is a good place to do it and remain comfortable, because Cusco's gotten very pricey.
0: And, you know, everybody will know to see the Fortress or or the, you know, Machu Picchu or whatever great pre-Columbian site they're looking at, but I would think a dimension that really will impact how beautiful and memorable and successful your trip is is how will you connect with Peruvian culture? Let's just close this little discussion about some highlights of Peru by tips from the the guidebook author herself on how to connect with Peruvian culture.
1: I think my favorite way to connect with Peruvian culture is to find where the local market is and just wander around and either have lunch there or talk to the stall owners, buy a piece of cheese or a piece of fruit. I, I don't think there's any more innately Peruvian experience than going to the market and doing some shopping. And that's where you're going to see all of the local people. It's where you're going to meet folks that live in the surrounding areas of a town and come into the village to sell. And you're also going to get to know a wide variety of of fruits, and foods, and treats, and candies, and see people uh, selling CDs of local bands. The market is the beating heart of every Peruvian town.
0: And if I go through the market, what's the most important couple of words I should know in the local language?
1: Me da buen precio, which is, will you give me a good price? Say that again? Me da buen precio.
0: Me da buen precio. Mm -hmm. And how do I say goodbye? Adios. Adios, I can remember that one. All right. (laughs) Carolina Miranda, thanks so much for a little help on how we may better appreciate and enjoy Peru.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We'll take a close look at the deep south of Spain in just a bit. Up next, public radio journalist Jake Warga tells us what he's observed about day-to-day life in a war zone with American soldiers. Life Inside the Green Zone is next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. If you listen a lot to public radio in the U.S., you've probably enjoyed a few driveway moments listening to Jake Warga's documentaries and radio portraits from unusual places. In recent years, that includes being embedded with the military stationed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Jake's been back there several times to document everyday life for soldiers, things like what Christmas feels like in a war zone and the comforts of home that the military tries to offer as a morale booster. Jake's with us right now to share more about his assignments and getting to know the troops overseas. Jake, thanks for being with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. So, Jake, you went to be a reporter in Iraq. How do you do
3: that? The Internet provides all the information you need. And it was back in 2009, and I decided I wanted to go to Iraq for Christmas. Because why not? Okay. Yeah, Christmas in Iraq. Never thought about it. Yeah. Okay. So I went online and applied for an embed slot, which turned out to be extremely easy. Though I am a freelance radio producer, I do work for different organizations now and then. And so with hearingvoices.com, which is a public radio outlet, I went to Iraq. But the military is a little vague in basically the instructions that they give you. They say, all right, bring a bulletproof vest, a Mm -hmm. sleeping bag a helmet and just show up in
0: Kuwait. Check, check, check. So you pack, I mean we all we all travel and pack and on your checking list, bulletproof vest. Where do you get a bulletproof vest? Again the internet. Bulletproofme.com. Bulletproofme.com. Okay, yeah. so you covered all of that. I never even thought about this, but you're a freelance reporter. A station isn't sending you there. You're not going with 60 minutes or something like that. You just want to get some material. You take it upon yourself. You go to the web. You let the Army, the American Army, know you want to have this experience, and they accommodate you.
3: Early wars used to be chemical. Then they became atomic. And now they're sort of information wars that we're engaged in. So that serves their needs, in
0: other words. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Okay, so how do you get there? You Where'd you fly, and then what happened?
3: Well, I was in Dubai working, doing photography project for the Tourism Bureau. And so it was a very easy flight to hop over to Kuwait. So I did. And I show up at the airport, but I thought it'd be really obvious. Now, I've never done this before. I know nothing of the military culture. And I thought there would be guys in uniforms going around that I could just sort of ask questions of. But I show up there, and it's just like any airport in the world, any international airport except everyone's smoking.
0: Right. So you're looking for somebody to tell you where to go to, how to get to Baghdad. Yeah. So I'm looking for someone to tell me, okay, where do I go?
3: How does this work? And you can always recognize a soldier by their boots. So over at the Starbucks, I see some guys hanging around. They're obviously Western guys. Big boots. Uh, Yep. With civilian (laughs) clothing. And I I go up and say, "Uh, you're you're, you're a U.S. soldier, right? They said, yeah. I said, how do we...
0: Where do we go? You don't look like you'd fit in in the military environment. It must have been kind of comical.
3: It was. <laughs> and I kept a little notebook, and this is where I started to learn about acronyms. Right, Because just like, you know, travel to any foreign country, the goal is to connect to the people, right? right to right, understand right. the culture. And though I spoke the language, there were some key words I was missing, and a lot of those involved acronyms. So the PAO officer, which is the public affairs officer, basically instructed me to show up in Kuwait. So I show up in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And these soldiers basically saying, oh, just just hang out. Someone will come for us. I mean, can you feel the stress of war here? No. So I order an espresso. And eventually this young girl comes over, old enough to be my daughter. And she's wearing civilian clothes, she's obviously American with some lanyard, and she says, comes up to me very officially, Are you trying to get to Ali Asalim Air Base? And I said, Yes. She says, Okay, wait over by the Cinnabon and we'll be there at fourteen hundred and she looks at me, two o'clock. <laughs> So that was my start okay, of war. go to war. Cinnabon,
0: and it's at 2 o'clock, and then you got to get to... So you're trying to get to Baghdad. Yeah, and Quaid. so
3: basically f- from the Kuwait International Airport, I have to get to the American Air Base, which is right next to the Kuwait Airport, but, oh, my gosh, they love to make these complicated. Mm-hmm. So we begin a convoy to go to that base, and then I wait for a couple of days and eventually get a flight on a C-130, one of those enormous cargo planes, to go basically just a couple of hours over to Baghdad. And I show up in Baghdad, and at Saddam Hussein's mother-in-law's house is the public affairs building where they give me my identification. And then I finally get to take a shower, which I really enjoyed. And then basically I'm off to northern Iraq on a Blackhawk.
0: They got you into Baghdad and... Uh... They took your personal information to kind of register you?
3: Yeah, I did the biometrics. So yeah. they took my eye exam. Yes, my teeth. I was like, oh my God. Your teeth? Why, yeah. Why do you need that?
0: You mean in case you got burned up and there was just teeth left?
3: I didn't want to think that, but I think so, yeah. That's or it. or if I broke into somewhere and took a bite of cheese, they know who it was. I did It's probably that. the former. I
0: think the former. Yeah. That's right there, a little bit chilling. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they got your dental records in case the rest of your body is unrecognizable. Right. And now you're really in the army. Now I'm now I'm in <laughs> it. But first I stopped
3: by the souvenir shop.
0: There's a souvenir shop at Saddam Hussein mother-in-law's. Next place. to it. Next door, okay. Yeah. Wonderful. There's
3: I guess if we were to write a travel guide to going to war zones. The shopping would be great. I mean, the souvenir shops.
0: So you are now embedded. Is there a group of other reporters that you're kind of like all trundled along with?
3: No, I. it was weird. There's very little reporting going on, embedded reporting at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to experience Christmas with the troops and understand what that was like. And also I was doing a story where I... I heard a lot about Iraq in the news about what was going on, but this was top down news. These mm-hmm. were press releases, these were headlines. I'm more of a bottom up
0: guy. So you're the, trying to find out what's it like to be under that helmet.
3: Yeah, the tree for the forest approach, where right. I talk to individual soldiers to try to understand what's going on, not okay. to the top brass. Right. Yeah. Because there is a big gap right in what is actually oh, yeah. going on and what so as far as finger on the pulse goes, I figure that would be with the infantry and with the army. And so I spent time in different bases and I could just hop on a Black Hawk and go to some other base and call ahead to the PAO. Pop quiz, what's PAO?
0: Oh, you told me earlier.
3: Public Affairs Officer. Okay. I kept a little notebook because <laughs> it's just like traveling to any country, you know, you oh, want it's to... like practical
0: phrases, but these are all yes. acronyms.
3: Yes. You'll need a phrase book for the military. Right. And it's going to be all acronyms. Wow. And PAO is Public Affairs Officer. And where you get your food is called the DFAC. Why? Dining facility.
0: Oh, of course. And that's, that's not very good
3: acronym. Your... That's an abbreviation. And you don't need MREs in DFAC. Oh, my gosh. The food is incredible. And talking to a lot of soldiers, especially ones that are in multiple deployments or reservists, they struggle to keep their weight
0: down. This is the sense I get, that we've gone to great lengths to create a wonderful environment for people before they go through that wall and get out in the real world, the real war zone. Mm-hmm. Within the base, it's comfortable?
3: Yeah, I mean, pretty much every base.
0: Air conditioned, Starbucks, McDonald's, fancy restaurants.
3: Well, Starbucks didn't get the contract. There's Green Beans, which is a, okay. which I, I, uh, I love Green Beans. And it's basically the Starbucks on bases. Hmm. So that's where I spent most of my money and time, actually, in Green Beans. And that's the other thing that I learned in the military that bravery is momentary, but a true measure of a soldier, I think Napoleon was mentioning this, is patience.
0: Jake Warga is a freelance journalist in public radio, and he's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Jake has spent time embedded with U.S. troops stationed in Iraq and Afghanistan, documenting day to day life in a war zone. You can listen to samples of his radio productions and see photos from his assignments on his website. That's jakewarga.com, spelled W A R G A. In World War II, we occupied Hitler's palaces, our our military did. And of course, after Iraq, we occupied Saddam Hussein's palaces. Did you get into his palaces and actually see some of those?
3: Saddam Hussein in Tikrit, Iraq, is his birthday palace, Mahmoud Palace. And I spent many days there. It was Hmm. a joint command center with the Iraqis. But yeah, let's just say we we're occupying this gorgeous palace, and the famous shot of Saddam Hussein firing off his golden gun right. was from this palace. Wow. And it was constructed so that during his birthdays, parades would go by. So when the army occupies places, they set up little uh, berths and beddings, and so every soldier has their own private sort of plywood cubicle hmm. to sleep in. Okay, and press are sort of considered visiting dignitaries. So I had the nicer cubicle, wooden cubicle. And I woke up in the morning looking at these golden chandeliers, actual golden chandeliers. So they
0: survive. Some of these ornamentation of his palace survives. I bet you they're
3: not there now. But mm-hmm. when we were there and I was mm-hmm. talking to the commander of the base, he said, our biggest problem is fighting boredom. Hmm. And there were these huge PlayStation video games set up and mm-hmm. they would be playing war games. These wow. soldiers dressed, well, as soldiers playing war games.
0: Fighting boredom. Yeah.
3: Inside a gorgeous palace.
0: I'm fascinated, Jake, about this transition from the safety of the base out into hot zones or whatever you would call it. Did you do that with the troops? I I went on multiple missions. And what's it like psychologically? You're sitting back in your favorite coffee shop and then 20 minutes later, you're inside of, of some armored vehicle.
3: I learned that in a Humvee, do not sit behind the driver in the back seat. And I think sometimes they love to put press back there. So every time you leave a base in a convoy, it's called leaving the wire. And I'm recording the whole time. And what they do is they have to test their weapons. So standing in the middle, I can see the feet of the turret gunner. And he gets to test fire. And they love this moment. Soldiers love this. But what I discovered is that really hot shells rain down on the person in the back seat, which is me. So I'm trying to record this and all these hot shells and I'm just jumping around trying to say, oh, really funny guys. And then someone starts taking pot shots with a 9 millimeter right next to me, which is why ear production, eye protection, and helmets are really necessary just for sitting next to these guys sometimes. And I was finding shells in my camera bag for a couple of days after and in my laundry even.
0: It must be great entertainment to take your embedded reporter and just scare the heck out of him.
3: Yeah. But otherwise... I'd be in an MRAP, which is mine-resistant ambush-proof vehicle, which okay. they have kind of have to rename because it's
0: neither of those. <laughs> Our number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425 as we check in with journalist Jake Warga about his work, documenting daily life for the U.S. military stationed overseas. Tom joins us on the line now from Oxnard, California. Tom, thanks for checking in. Well, thank you very much,
4: Rich. This has been uh, very interesting to listen to Jake's experience. Uh, I'm a Navy guy myself, and uh, I was deployed with the Army for a year in Iraq and many of the experiences that he's describing uh I kind of went through the same thing being a navy guy in the army world I uh, had to kind of learn their acronyms a little bit and uh, huh. and and had some of the same similar experiences that he was describing over the last few mm-hmm. minutes so uh, I've been I've been listening and and uh, having uh, some good chuckles and and remembering some of the the fonder things about being over there that were the good things to remember I mean, I was with the Army Corps of Engineers, and our main headquarters was inside the Green Zone in Baghdad. I was there from June of 2007 through June of 2008. So I was there during the surge. And, uh, yeah, our creature comforts were pretty darn good. Uh, The Corps of Engineers really did take good care of us over there, you know, when we were living in the facilities. Well, not to be little, uh, the
0: reality of getting out there and actually fighting, but it's nice that you have a a comfortable base to go back and catch your breath. And, hey, Tom, I'm curious about how hot it must be inside those uniforms, because, you know, a postman wears short pants on a hot day. You can't do that when you're a soldier. You wear the same uniform regardless of the weather, I would think.
4: That's correct. I mean, uh, you know, I would go out on missions to construction sites where we were building water treatment plants, sewer plants, roads, bridges, hospitals, what the Corps of Engineers was doing. So, yes, I had my full uniform on, long sleeve shirt, long sleeve pants, with my body armor, with my Kevlar helmet. Uh, When I would go to less populated places, I would have my M4 rifle with me, my M9 pistol with me, Uh, a good amount of ammunition to contribute, should uh, need to contribute. Yeah, it was hot. Uh, you, you get back and, you know, your entire, you know, undergarments are, are soaked to where you can actually wring them out. And, uh, I mean, I have a picture of uh, just at the base we were at one day, you know, 130 degrees in the middle of the day in, uh, in Baghdad. It, it, 130
0: it, it, degrees, dressed up with all that gear. When you get home, what's it like? The first thing you must want to do is shed all that stuff.
4: Yeah, yeah, you do, and you go take a shower. And uh, I always, you know, I was listening to Jake say about the, you know going outside the wire. And I, I, I made some pretty good trips out there into construction sites. I would meet with the minister of oil, the minister of uh, water and urban development, the minister of health for the hospitals we were building, mm-hmm. and actually go into the actual sites where you would be wearing your uniform and your body armor, all that kind of good stuff. I never ever felt worried about getting to where I was going. Coming home was always the, you know, coming back to the green zone was always the dangerous part, and after I get back, I'd always just sit in a corner somewhere and just sort of decompress because that's where I always felt the more danger because they know you're out, and they know you have to get back and only get back to a a certain couple of places, and that's where the the ambushes and the roadside attacks and and the IEDs get you.
0: I never I never thought about that, but if you were the enemy, I, I guess that is one predictable place where you could uh, lay an ambush or something. Jake, did you have that notion also?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, I went many times with route clearance vehicles or patrols that would go out before convoys to make sure that there were no mysterious wires or piles of rubbish by the mm-hmm. road, which is... Well, as you know, there's a lot of piles of rubbish by the road. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the weight that soldiers carry, they're they're finally training some of the medics to do chiropractic adjustments. Hmm. And when I was just in Afghanistan, I did a story about what soldiers have to carry around with them from the physical weight to the emotional weight and sort of the,
4: the body armor.
3: I mean, how many? We're talking about 40 pounds. Tom, what did you carry with you
0: when you were going out?
4: Yeah, my ensemble, my body armor ensemble was about yeah, about 45 pounds. You know, the mm-hmm. Kevlar helmet is about eight or nine pounds on your head. Mm. Uh, the battle and, yeah, rattle. The battle rattle, yeah. But combat soldiers, you know, they're carrying all that, plus their weapon, you know, 200, 300 rounds of ammunition, you know, in 30 magazine clips, they're, they're, and sometimes with a pack on mm. or a radio. Yeah, the combat troops are toting a lot heavier load mm-hmm. than I did going to construction sites.
3: Yeah, and there's so many pockets on the uniform. Tom, is there some personal item that you always had with you?
4: Yeah, I kept three things with me. One was it was a little tiny American flag that I had gotten at a USO in Kuwait, and I always wish I would have kept the little note that was written by a third or fourth year old that says, you know, that said, "Good luck, and I hope you come home soon and safe." that had this little flag next to me, because I would have loved to have contacted that person. And then uh, I was living at the time in New Hampshire, uh, at the shipyard in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which was on the border of Maine and New Hampshire. So someone had sent me a Maine flag. Someone sent me a New Hampshire state flag. So I kept those three with me all the time, just to kind of remember me about home. And uh, so those went with me everywhere I went. And I actually have those in in a little... uh, wall-mounted little shadow box thing of some mm-hmm. of the uh, things I brought home from Iraq, uh, as I remember, because those are with me every day in Iraq with those three flags.
0: Tom, thanks for your service.
4: All right. Thank you very much, Rick. And okay. uh, and thank you, Jake.
0: Thank you, Tom. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been Embedded in Iraq with Jake Warga. Jake, that must have been a powerful experience. What did you end up taking home?
3: I took home digital images I took home digital sounds and recordings, and I took home some mental images, which are more vivid than both of those. I came back with the feeling that I need to see more, that I want to go back. And I want to spend time with the civilian affairs teams, which are soldiers who go out and meet and work with civilians. And I want to spend time with them.
0: To put that broken country back together.
3: Yeah, the reconstruction efforts. Yeah,
0: because that is really the reality right now is uh, putting that country together and then uh, cementing the peace.
3: And we are leaving shortly, and we might be leaving very quickly. And I'm just curious what are we leaving behind? Yeah. But there will always be conflict. And as Plato said, only the dead have seen the end
0: of war. Well, that's a cheery way to finish. (laughs) Only the dead have seen the end of war. Plato? Plato. He's a smart guy. He's also dead. He knows what the end of war is. He's, he knows. Jake Warga, thank you so much for being with us and sharing uh, your experience from being embedded with our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thanks for having me, Rick.
3: There is a name I love to hear
0: I'm Staff Sergeant Ike Richardson, HAC-41-BSTB, Food Service Sergeant, um, originally from Ufala, Alabama. It's ooh, my doubts Yes, it does and it counts all my feet. Up next, we explore the heart of southern Spain and Andalusia, as our guides from Spain take your calls at 877-333, Rick. When my dreams take me to Spain, a lot of times I think my Spanish travel dreams are actually Andalusian dreams. There's so much in Andalusia, the southern part of Spain, that a lot of us travelers think is quintessentially Spain. We're going to visit Andalusia right now with the help of a couple of guests, and we're going to talk about what makes Andalusia special and how to get the most out of Andalusia. Our guides, Federico Garcia Barroso and Javier Menor, both guides from Spain, have joined us today to talk about exploring Andalusia. Javier, Federico, thanks for joining us. Thank you for bringing this. Thank you. Gracias, Rick. Now is Andalusia quintessentially Spain or is it a
5: is it a distinct region? How can people put Andalusia in its right spot? Federico? Andalusia is is the soul of Spain. I mean for good or for bad reasons, it's just the stereotype of Spain. The stereotype, yeah. Think about anything you want to think about Spain and you will find out all that in Andalusia. Paella. Paella, good weather, friendly flamenco. people, flamenco, music. Dance. Beautiful girls. Semana Santa, all the festivals.
0: All right. Now, what is Andalusia? How is it distinct from the rest of Spain? How would another Spaniard say, no, that's not Spanish, that's Andalusian? Mm -hmm. The accents. The accent. What is the accent for Andalusia? Uh, It's a different accent.
2: Uh, Very often, even we, people Mm -hmm. from other parts of the country, we could have some trouble
0: understanding people from the deep south, like Cadiz. So it's the Deep South. Give me, is there some way to make it easy for our American ears to hear that?
5: They have an extraordinary sense of humor. Pretty musical. And they are very seductive. Seductive, musical
0: sense of humor. Totally. Andalusia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Andalusia with two uh, professional guides who have guided all over Spain, Javier Menor and Federico Garcia Barroso. When we think about southern Spain, there are three great cities, Granada, Sevilla, Córdoba. Mm-hmm. How do
5: you compare those cities if somebody has to choose uh, with limited time, Federico? It's the, the the Golden Triangle, the three cities. Sevilla is a city. Sevilla is is the big city and is just honestly I think that is the most romantic place in in Spain. A
2: horse carriage,
0: ride in horse carriage. Fair horse. to call it
5: the capital of Andalusia, totally culturally. Yeah. Then Granada. Granada is just breathtaking. The geographical enclave where Granada is located and the Alhambra Palace and the Generalife Gardens are just unique. And then we'll say Córdoba, the most spectacular mosque in Spain, is right there.
2: The mosque, is, I call it an Easter egg, yeah. because it is a
0: mosque with a surprising size. And it's got a that? cathedral built inside the this mosque. This is an amazing thing. So Córdoba, we have to remember, was the leading city of Muslim or Moorish mm-hmm. uh, Spain mm-hmm. at a time when it was the greatest city in all of Europe. I mm-hmm. think you could say for a century or so... Cordoba was the leading city of Europe. Name, is, that, is that fair to say?
2: Name any city right now, London, Paris. There were babies when Cordoba was the center of knowledge, the center of the uh, astronomies, the center of uh,
0: mathematics, the center of languages. The more you know about Cordoba in its heyday, when Europe was in the Dark Ages, mm-hmm. the more you realize, wow, the ultimate city in Europe, Cordoba. It was. Now, all was. of Europe just about united to push the Moors back into Africa, yeah. and Cordoba was eventually overtaken by the Christian forces, and then the Moorish capital went down to Granada. And today, as tourists, one of the big three cities, Granada is on the map, mostly because it has
5: the great Alhambra, the last palace of the Moorish kings. The Cathedral of Córdoba is inside the mosque as a sign of religious intolerance, mm-hmm. and there is a fascinating story in northern Spain called the Way of St. James. St. James of Compostela is just a political answer from Christianity to Islam in southern Spain, and it's all based about a legend, St. James, we have no proof, no way to prove that St. James was physical in Spain. Mm-hmm. That is a legend to justify politically those crusades in those medieval times against Islam, against Córdoba.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Andalusia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Awilda on the phone in Douglasville, Georgia. Awilda, thanks for your call.
6: Hi. Um, this past October, I went to visit Granada. I have family in Seville, and the last time I had been to Granada was in 1971. I guess mm-hmm. I'm dating myself, but we organized our own trip. We were in Spain for three weeks, and we absolutely loved having dinner in one of the garments overlooking the Alhambra, mm-hmm. and it, it was a wonderful experience. I, I, I told my husband, um, it's one of those places that I would say I do again.
0: <laughs> now, what was so good about having dinner in a Carmen? First of all, it's in a district which is very Arabic-feeling. It's sort of yes, like the... Yes, uh,
6: in the... Alba
0: Sin. Alba Sin, Alba
6: yes. And the Carmens were all residences in this area, And the ones that remain today that have that beautiful location, most of them have been turned into restaurants, and then there are these terraces where they have restaurants, but they also, um, they're big enough where they may even have a vegetable garden there, and they also um, host other kind of events like wedding receptions and family dinners, you know, well, if you want yes. a wedding
0: reception in Granada, a Carmen would be the place to go. Again, they have yes, those, those gardens. Yes, as a matter Absolutely. of fact,
6: the owner of the Carmen was so gracious. He took us down, mm-hmm. down one level to see um, his vegetable garden. Uh-huh. And and it was wonderful, too, because we went right at sundown. So as it mm. got darker, exactly. you, you must always time
0: your walk up to the hill. Yeah. With the sunset, you know what I like to do when I'm wandering around the scene is drop into a Carmen during the middle of the day mm-hmm. and literally pick my table with the guy who runs the restaurant, mm-hmm. and oh, make yeah. a reservation, <laughs> and then be there for the sunset. Because I don't know if you go there for the food or the view more. What do you think, Federico? Well, <laughs> I think both, and, and yeah. I think both. we
6: were very fortunate to enjoy both. the The meal was outstanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the service also. I mean, it was you pay a little bit more than you know in any other restaurant, but the service. And uh, if spending, you travel
2: on the budget, just get a picnic, go up to one of the views you have in the on that same hill, and for just a few dollars, you can enjoy the same view You know,
0: that's true. There's those beautiful viewpoints that give you the same view as the Carmen with the gypsies <laughs> yeah, singing and yeah. playing the guitar. I love that. Now, Wilda, thank you for your call. Yes,
6: thank you.
0: Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. So we're talking about Granada, and we've got the gypsy culture there, too, and when you stand on those viewpoints, you've got the the gypsy guitarists, and they Mm -hmm. come there, and they make a pretty good living just entertaining all the romantics there for the view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was one of the highlights of Spain. Susan's on the phone in Macon, Georgia. Susan, thanks for your call.
6: Hey, planning a trip to Spain, but we have to include some hiking, so I would love your hiking, your favorite hiking trails ideas.
0: What do you guys recommend if you want to get out in the great outdoors
2: in Andalusia? If you like... uh, Mountains, Granada will be great because we have the highest mountain in the peninsula, something like 12,000 feet, and it's plenty of uh, trails there. That's when you go south from Granada toward the coast, is that you right? You will see the mountains right, right there. Yeah, mm-hmm. But yeah. if you like something different, totally off the beaten track, you've got the National Park of
5: Doñana. Where is that? Uh, south from south the, uh, Spain. From no, not far, just yes, near, near, no, not far from Portugal. And there you find a never-ending space with all those um, birds from all over, you know. It's uh, and those dunes, and uh, it is actually it's one of the best uh, natural reserves in in, in Europe. Huh. You know, it's
2: in, it's seriously preserved, and yeah. that's of the beaten track. Doñana National Park. How do you spell that? Doñana. D o e n y the Spanish. And with uh, a en- squiggle over it, yeah. A n a Doñana. Doñana. All
6: the, right, Doña and the hiking
2: now. trails are marked. Uh, Hiking trails are sort of different
0: because we don't understand them as hiking trails, just places to walk. Places to <laughs> walk, okay. <laughs> yes. You know, also the the route of the Pueblos Blancos, I think is just a beautiful natural kind of preserve, and that's... Uh, the Grazalema mountain range. Grazalema, yeah, Graza-Lima. that would be uh, between Ronda and Sevilla. And
2: basically. Ronda can be used as a... Ronda is a beautiful base. In fact, Ronda
0: is one of the most dramatic towns to look at when you approach it. Incredible. It has this incredible gorge, and there's an old Moorish town and a new town connected by this dramatic bridge. Endless number of restaurants,
2: enough for a week and never Mm. to repeat. And you
6: can hike in the gorge
2: there. You can do. You can go up You can go down the gorge. You can go. You can actually yes, Ronda and the Sierra de Ronda is a very nice place for hiking. You can be
0: like a Christian slave carrying water from the river up to the town, (laughs) up and down all day long for the Moors there.
5: But I tell you something: it's very, very, very hot in summertime, and it's very, very cold in wintertime. Okay, so just do it in spring or fall.
6: Mm -hmm. Okay, Suzanne,
5: Uh have fun on
0: your trip. Uh, Thanks for your call.
6: Happy travels.
5: You
0: too.
6: Thank you.
0: So when we're talking about Andalusia, a lot of time we think flamenco and flamenco culture and music. How can we best enjoy flamenco? I mean, there's lots of touristic flamenco
5: shows in Sevilla. Mm -hmm. Is that just the easiest, most practical way for a tourist to to get that dose of flamenco? Of course, there are many flamenco shows and you just have to have a good friend to tell you which one is the right one, which one is not a tourist trap. Uh, Personally, I, I love flamenco. I love flamenco. I think it's one of the most beautiful Dances and songs in in the whole European folklore. You know, it's all about passion, it's all about Mm. love, death. If you were a good flamenco player or dancer, you don't really have to be necessarily a gypsy person, Mm -hmm. all right? Although it has those gypsy roots. Gypsy roots. roots. Absolutely. But when I go to a flamenco show, I find it riveting. Even if I go to a touristic one, Mm -hmm.
0: which aficionados would say, oh, it's not very good Mm -hmm. flamenco, still, it just takes your breath away. It's just dramatic, it's romantic, it's edgy. Mm. It's exhaustingly beautiful. I could even oh, it say is. it is sort of hot. It is hot It is. in a sensual it way. It is sensual, extremely and sensual. Ole! <laughs> you can just see these guys in the background. Yes. Uh-huh. But you know, in uh, in Sevilla, mm-hmm. and I think you can fairly say Sevilla would be the capital
5: of flamenco culture. Is that it is? The roots were one in Jerez, the place, in H- oh, is that, Jerez is that right? de la Frontera. But nowadays, some of those remarkable dancers and singers are in Sevilla, and you can go to. Impromptu Sevilla in little mm-hmm. bars. That it would be later than most tourists are awake. Yeah.
0: But if you just stumble into those bars, the flamenco is free. You just buy a, a drink. But um, I could, yeah,
2: I could like to make the distinction between flamenco culture and dance and singing with Andalusian or Sevillian folklore. Tell me about that distinction. Uh, we sort of mix it up, but it's different. Flamenco is a culture and is a way of dancing and singing. And then we have the Andalusian civilian folklore. It's a different music. The very famous song La Macarena, right? That could be cataloged as Macarena. Andalus- La Macarena is, Andalusia. is Andalusian
5: folk. It's not flamenco, but it's. It's just Andalusian an ex- explosion of happiness, you know, and easy dances, you know, for all kind of people, right. and children, other people. The clapping, the guitar. So that's not yeah. flamenco, really.
0: So if I go to the spring fair, the yeah. the fair Feria in, de Sevilla in Sevilla, and you find yourself in these casetas. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when you go to the the spring fair, it's like every family or every organization that wants to host a a, a party mm-hmm. and a tent. Mm-hmm. they they have a tent, mm-hmm. and they it's like a for a week long this is party and there's like 200 of them in the same fairgrounds mm-hmm. it's like 200 big family wedding parties going on at the same time and for a that week will strength.
2: be the addresses those uh, dotted dresses will be the horses. The dresses. Yeah. The horses, the, the, horses the, sherry. the sherry
0: one. And that is civilian folklore. Now, that, so that's not... Everybody is snapping their fingers exactly. and dancing it's sevillanas. That's that is the and name are, of the dance. So that's not flamenco. Sevillanas. That's, uh, that's Andalusian. And, huh? oh yeah. boy,
2: let me say, if you're lucky enough to be in Sevilla or any other big Andalusian town in those days, women cannot be any prettier. You know, it's interesting because
0: those polka dot dresses look almost clownish alone at another time of year. Oh, yeah. But when you get a thousand beautiful Andalusian women all wearing these polka dot dresses mm-hmm. and doing this dance and sharing this sherry. And the men, it's a, it's a and men look. Beautiful and the too. men also look on the horses. The men on the horse. Slim figures. Yes, there it's a, it's a celebration of life and it's very sensuous. Mm-hmm. And it happens to be in springtime, the most mm-hmm. fertile time of the year. <laughs> Unless it rains and they cry, literally cry. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! It April. That's so, right. Really. Now this really is, is this is not just Sevilla, but you'll find these April fairs or spring fairs all yeah. around the region. I stumbled onto one in Jerez, which was incredible.
2: And sometimes mm-hmm. middle-sized towns like Arcos. Yes, they're more mm-hmm. accessible because it's more
0: friendlier. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves, and together we're exploring Andalusia with the help of our Spanish tour guide friends Javier Menor and Federico Garcia Barroso. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Matt's on the phone in Chicago. Hi, Matt. Thanks for your call.
7: Hi, Rick. I appreciate all that you do for travel. Thank you. I I guess my comment is just I absolutely adore Andalusia, and in specific Sevilla. And I may be a little bit biased because I studied there when I was in college for four months. But I just think in terms of quintessential Spain with history and the whitewashed villages and tapas and the friendly people and music and late dinners in the Paseo, it just doesn't get better than out of Lucia. <laughs> we're, Which
0: all, is true. we're all smiling in agreement, Matt. With all those nice words, I just want to go there again. Now, Matt, talk about <laughs> your experience with the Paseo when you were out in the streets with all the whole community.
7: Oh, it's just, it's just wonderful. It's such a neat cultural event and so different than many of the places that I visited in Europe and certainly in the States where you have kind of the young people gawking at each other and sizing one another up and then the, and the elder statesmen of the neighborhood walking around watching the youngsters do that to one another. So at the time I was 20, I've been back three times since, and with my mother it was a different experience than when I was with my wife, but just to kind of be a part of it and walk the streets and experience the cafes and the tapas and the tinto, it just is not to be missed. It's, it's a neat experience at 9, 10 p.m. when you see people from the age of 15 to the age of 85 walking around and talking to each other and having laughs. You know, there's such a warmth about the people in Andalusia, and I found that not just in in Sevilla, but even in Cordoba or Ronda. Mm-hmm. Um, they just are very open, and they're very interested, and they really kind of live life to the fullest. And I think that's evident in, in the tapas culture that they have, the flamenco, and the music that they celebrate. Uh, it's just is a, a really neat place, very unique.
0: And, you know, as I hear you talking, I also think accessible. For a tourist like you or me, I, only, I don't speak Spanish, but I can, it's accessible to me. I can sit down and make friends and be caught up in that wonderful folkloric or flamenco or love-of-life atmosphere.
7: You know, it's so funny you say that. My wife, uh, who had never been to Spain and doesn't speak any Spanish, she said the same thing the first time she went. It's just very easy to fit in. It's a very neat culture. The people are so friendly. Um, It's fun to walk around and and see all the different tapas bars and the different sites and the history is so interesting. But even geographically, it's relatively easy to access via bus and even the the train that they didn't have when I was in college from Madrid to Sevilla now I think is only an hour and a half hour and 45 minutes. So. You fly into Madrid, within a couple hours, you're down in Sevilla. Oh, yeah. And then it doesn't take more than an hour or so to get to the Pueblos Blancos.
2: You can, even, you can even make it as a day trip from Madrid with the high-speed train. It, it is amazing.
0: You know, Matt, when you and I were backpackers, it took eight hours to take the train from Madrid down to Sevilla. Now you can do it in two and a half hours. Two and a half. No it's exhausting, that, yeah. but it's fine a day trip yeah, Madrid. Yeah, that's the uh, the wonderful Ave, the bullet train. And just to ride that bullet train and looking at La Mancha just rocketing by you outside, it's a beautiful <laughs> thing, and it stops in Cordoba. It does. So you mm-hmm. could you could go from Madrid to Córdoba, hop out there for a couple hours, and then carry on 45 minutes into Sevilla, settle into Sevilla for three or four days, and boy, that's a pretty beautiful excursion from the heading south from Madrid.
7: Yeah, and the way I described it to my mom is we're going to get on the train in Madrid, and she was a 60-year-old lady at the time, and the farther we go every 10 minutes, we're getting deeper and deeper into quintessential Spain, and by the time you're in Sevilla, you're kind of in the heart of old-world Spain, and let's enjoy some Rioja, let's enjoy some tapas, <laughs> and let's enjoy some good music.
0: Matt, it sounds like you're a good tour guide. Thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Happy travels. It's interesting, isn't it? The enthusiasm that a trip to Andalusia generates. And it really is a striking contrast from life in America, I think. Uh, uh, here, we're just down to business, and we've got mm-hmm. the time is money, and yeah. uh, you don't just wander out in the streets after dark so much. But I in mean, Spain, uh, it's a multi generational festival of life out in the streets. You've got the accessibility where you've got this mobile feast. You can hop into one bar for a little Squid Ring sandwich and a nice glass of wine. You go down to true. the other bar for some. Uh, some beautiful gambas a la...
5: A la plancha. Uh, gambas Gamba. a la plancha.
0: We love that. Later on, you could have some uh, pig's but, ears. But and, be uh, careful
2: with the definition because we have several types of gambas and some of them can be very expensive.
0: Outrageous! So know a little bit about uh, your language and uh, check the price do before please. you buy. But the most important thing is to embrace Andalusia. Become a temporary yes. local person. Learn a little bit about it before you go. Make some friends and, and let and, the local uh, stuff yeah, And never be afraid to
2: explore, because Andalusia is not just Córdoba, Sevilla. You've got wonderful regions. I love Jaén, which we can consider as the olive oil world capital.
0: And Federico, mm. what, is, what is your advice for, uh, along with Javier, to say explore? Mm-hmm. What would you say to really
5: feel the soul of Andalusia? It's all about the food, the weather, and the people, no matter where you go. You just find those three things, and, and you are just in the right place at the right time. That is Andalusia. Beautiful food, beautiful weather, beautiful people. Absolutely. And you will fall in love. <laughs> Javier Monroe, Federico Garcia Barroso,
0: thank you very much. And I can hardly wait to join you sometime down in the south of Spain, Andalusia. You're welcome. Hasta la vista, amigo. <laughs> Hasta la vista. <laughs>
3: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks to our colleagues at NPR West for their help this week. You'll find more in the radio section of
0: ricksteves.com and we'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, Human Rights and Democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store,
5: you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Spain, Portugal, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books for Iberia and beyond, visit the Travel
0: Store at ricksteves.com.